This is SAFM. Yay. And next up here on SAFM, it's time for the Enviro Show. The uh, greenest show on the station, as we like to think of it, and uh, sure for sure it is, certainly is today anyway. I'm Nancy Richards, producer is Kim Winter, and Lon Wabofani is uh, the technical support. And if you'd like to join in with us, you're welcome. You can uh, give us a call on 0892102010, and if you want to get in touch with us at a later stage, you can send us an email at enviro at SAFM. You can find us on Facebook, too, on the Enviro Show on SAFM. Well, that's all the housekeeping. Let's get stuck in. Let's get to uh, see what's on our plate tonight. Well, you can't eat electricity. It's the title of a discussion paper that's been put together by Oxfam. It's an organisation, as you probably know it, more better known or better known for the work uh, that they've done around alleviating hunger and famine all across the world. But changing focus a little bit here in South Africa, what they've been looking at is the linking of low carbon policies with poverty reduction. And using the the paper, the white paper, as as a point of departure, they recently held a dialogue at Constitution Hill in Johannesburg to get the conversation going around it. So, having been there myself, we thought we would invite some of the speakers to, to join us. So, we're going to be talking to the two authors, Jim Gore, he's of Oxfam, and he's currently in New York. And locally here, we're going to be talking to Liz McDade. She was the other author. She's an independent researcher, presently doing her Master's in Climate Change and Development at the University of Cape Town. So, she's got her, very much uh, got her finger on the pulse there. We'll also be talking to a woman who's both with the Gender Climate Change and also Women in Energy Forum. She's in Davila de Mukwena. And uh, we'll be having a chat, or very brief chat, to one of the women who was there, Emily Charlie, who uh, asked a really good question. So we're going to be hearing her question once again. And there were some, uh, there were some very practical su- suggestions and conversations that came out of it. So it was a really, really interesting conversation, which I hope you'll enjoy hearing just a little bit part of. Well, inevitably, food production and food security is a key element in the link between low-carbon strategies and poverty reduction. And on the subject of food, we're also going to be hearing later on talking to Pick and Pay Sustainability, Mr. Sustainability, he's Andre Nell, to find out what lies at the green beating heart of this supermarket giant, because I think green runs through their veins. So that's what we've got in the lineup. Do stay with us. A little bit of eco-info for you. Starting off, as you heard, we're going to be talking about uh, uh, handling poverty and climate change in Africa in the same breath. Just read in an interesting uh, magazine called African Business, a piece here that says, in Africa, climate change is raising the temperature of the earth unnaturally, and it could wipe out vast areas of cropland and accelerate desertification, and the rise in sea levels could drown Africa's islands and coastline and devastate its fisheries. But the worst part, they say, is that of all the regions in the world, Africa is the most innocent in contributing to climate change. The continent emits just 3% of emissions globally, but according to the African Development Bank, climate uh, climate damage as a percentage of GDP is higher in Africa than in any other continent in the world. That's really quite a thing. Another bit whilst we're in Africa, another interesting snippet here in in, uh, Kenya, The loss of more than half their livestock in the 2009 drought has led Maasai pastoralists in northern Tanzania's Arusha region to breed fewer, stronger cattle that are resilient to climate change. Preferred animals are those that feed selectively on the range, can trek long distances and are resistant to local diseases. Well, that sounds like a very good idea. Also a good idea, and we're going to be hearing a little bit about pick and pay and, and what they do. 
uh, later on in the show. Recently launched is the Biodiversity and Business Network in alignment with the model of Global Partnership for Business and Biodiversity. It currently uh, includes the Department of Environmental Affairs, Pick and Pay, Nedbank, Hatch and De Beers. And the aim of the network is to facilitate engagement with various business sectors, industries and related stakeholders to promote and assist the integration and mainstreaming of biodiversity considerations into business agendas and operations. Good idea. And just uh, lastly on the Inco, Eco Info, on a, on a slightly lighter note, we uh, recently travelled on Mango Airlines and found all this O information. On the orange tree, everything on an orange tree is used, which is making it very environmentally friendly. Ripe fruit is peeled and eaten fresh. Slices uh, and rind are dried and candied. The rind and zest are used as food flavouring or garnish in cooking. And the pith is, important, is an important source of pectin. Also interesting to know on the subject of oranges, firstly, that the world's annual orange harvest is more than 70 million tonnes, most of it used to make juice, and Brazil produces about 20 million tonnes of oranges annually, there's a thing. And just lastly, 50 glasses of water are what it takes to produce just one glass of orange juice. 50 glasses of water. Not sure how environmentally friendly that is. Maybe something to think about next time you have your little orange juice for breakfast. You're listening to the Enviro Show. Stay with us. The National Arts Festival in Grahamstown runs from the 27th of June to the 7th of July. The biggest festival on the continent has 3,000 performances, including the best theatre, hottest jazz, awesome dance, great music, lectures, comedy, film, performance art, exhibitions and much more. It's the place to be this winter. Book now at CompuTicket. Visit us online at www.nationalartsfestival.co.za. The National Arts Festival. 11 days of amazing. In partnership with SAFM. South Africa's news and information leader. This is SAFM. And this is the Enviro Show right here on SAFM. And what we're looking at today is, well, you can't eat electricity. Hunger, inequality and low carbon development in South Africa. We're going to start with that, and that's the title of a discussion paper that's been put together by Oxfam. And we're going to be talking to the co-authors of this paper. We, in a minute, we're going to be uh, in think, on the principle of thinking global and acting local. In a minute, we're going to be talking to the local author. She's Liz McDade. But first, we're going to be thinking globally. And on the line, we have Tim Gore. He's the other author. He's the head of advocacy for the Grow Campaign Oxfam International. And we have him on the line all the way from New York. Hi, Tim. Hi there. Excellent. Very nice to have you with us. Thank you very much. Give us, can you contextualise this, uh, um, the, the paper that you were co-author of, You Can't Eat Electricity, contextualise it for us on a, on a, a global level? Sure, well, th- thanks for the opportunity, thanks for having us on to discuss it. It's, um, it's critical work for, for Oxfam because, I mean, you mentioned in your introduction that Oxfam is probably best known for our work on tackling hunger and famine around the world. And, and what we've uh, increasingly come to realize is that climate change is one of the major drivers of increasing hunger and a real threat to food security in the future. So for us, you know, through our work on, on hunger, through our global GROW campaign for food justice, we recognize we need to get to grips with the climate crisis. But what this means is that we've got to get greenhouse gas emissions down and very quickly. We know that it's mostly developed countries, the rich countries around the world, that are overwhelmingly responsible for this problem. They're the ones that should have acted. But frankly, we're in a situation now where because they failed to act adequately over the last 20 years, we now require all countries to take some kind of action. And of course, increasingly, that means that people are looking at 
middle-income countries like South Africa and asking them to do more to reduce their emissions. Um, now, that's interesting to us because we're also uh, very aware that in these middle-income countries, though um, uh, they're becoming wealthier overall, there's still very high levels of, of uh, poverty and hunger. Um, in, in fact, the largest number of uh, poor people are increasingly found in middle-income countries, not in the poorest countries anymore, in countries like South Africa that are marked by very high levels of inequality. So for us, this, this opens up a, a very uh, interesting new terrain that if we want to drive down greenhouse gas emissions globally, we need to understand how to do that in countries like South Africa in the context of inequality and in the context of still ongoing hunger and, and, and uh, poverty and deprivation amongst very large numbers of the population. So that, that's what led us to, to write the paper about South Africa, and I'm really pleased that um, you picked up on it in, in the show today. Is it, you know, obviously South Africa is a very unequal country, uh, yeah, unequal country, but not the only one in the world. Are you then using South Africa as a test case? Um, in some ways, I mean, you're, you're right. The South Africa is, is just about the most unequal mm. uh, country on the planet. Um, but these are uh, trends that we see in, in many of the um, developing countries within the G20, for example, uh, countries like Mexico, countries like India, China, Brazil. Um, these are all countries that are, that, um, are growing in overall wealth, um, where there are increasing numbers of very rich people, but also very high levels of inequality, um, which, which are leaving uh, a lot of people behind. Um, uh, continuing to suffer in, in, in poverty um, and facing uh, very real food insecurity. So um, South Africa is you know, a good uh, uh, test case, as, as you say, to understand what are these challenges? How do we tackle greenhouse gas emissions um, in, in a context of high uh, rising inequality? And if we can get it right in South Africa, then there's a real opportunity for, for South Africa to be a model for the rest of the world, actually. And on some of the policies that I'm sure we'll, we'll come on to talk about in due course, um, that are on the table is that I feel like the carbon tax, for example. Mm. If, if uh, there's an opportunity there to design a carbon tax in a developing country like South Africa, um, if that can be a success and a real tool for redistribution within the country, which is one of the things we argue in our paper, um, then that can be a real precedent for other countries and the sort of thing that we'd hope um, shines, shines a beacon and, and um, allows other countries to follow in behind. So the equation is, and I, earlier I read out a little bit of information from an African business magazine, the equation is it's basically rich countries are guilty and poor countries are suffering. It's, it's a very simplistic way of putting it. But at the same time, in a country like ours, it can also be seen as a huge opportunity to get the balance right, to, get the, uh, to reduce poverty, to, to sort out uh, you know, the carbon emission problems at the same time. So it, 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 we've got to see it as an opportunity, as a positive thing. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And um, one of the things that we argue in the paper is that actually if we can make low-carbon development in countries like South Africa um, uh, speak to the needs, the everyday needs and struggles of people in poverty, it can actually become um, an amazing tool for transformation uh, in a country in favor of, um, of, of, of the struggles of people in poverty. So, for example, uh, going back to the example of the carbon tax, if we can design this carbon tax in such a way that it actually redistributes revenues to the very poorest and becomes a tool of economic redistribution, then uh, we, start, we start to see how low-carbon development as an agenda, as a set of policies, becomes something that is in the interest of the poorest people, something that they uh, can get behind and advocate for. And all of a sudden, um, this isn't just about tackling climate change, but this is also about reshaping our economies in a way which is more sustainable but also more equal, fairer, um, and more just. 
It's not just about uh, carbon tax. It isn't just about money. I mean, there have got to be other things here. And I think you've got another couple of other sort of recommendations, strategies, if you like, which are what? Um, well, we've got a couple of others. So um, underpinning uh, this new kind of approach, a new politics of low-carbon development that we're starting to explore, we think that um, we've got to have a new approach to social dialogue, and there are others that you've got in, um, you know, uh, on the show with you that are much better placed than me to talk about how that would look in South Africa. Mm. Um, but we think that that's critical. We've got to make sure that um, the voices of uh, people in, in poverty, um, those that are marginalised from the mainstream, uh, debates about the, um, the big macroeconomic policies of the country, you know, that they have their voices heard, that they're able to participate meaningfully um, in debates about the future of their country. So we think that's a challenge which underpins um, all of the, uh, this whole uh, entire agenda. Beyond that, we think that, as I said, there are certain things that can be done on the carbon tax. And then we, we, we start to look at the uh, whole issue of renewable energy. And, you know, we, we're struck by the fact that still um, it's largely um, an agenda for, uh, driven by environmental groups within uh, civil society that are doing an amazing job at pressing the need to increase the amount of renewable energy in the energy mix in South Africa. But we think there's scope to further explore the way in which renewable energy actually can support um, uh, the needs of people in poverty um, and, and the fight against hunger. So, for example, we're, we're conscious that increasingly, despite the sort of myth, if you like, that, that coal and other fossil fuels are, are a very cheap source of energy, uh, we're struck by the evidence which suggests that um, wind power and increasingly solar power are becoming competitive and, and indeed may, may already or very soon be uh, a cheaper source of electricity um, than fossil fuels. Now, if that's the case, then we can get consumer prices down by using uh, renewable energy, then that's a major incentive from a, from a poverty reduction perspective um, of pushing for renewable choices. Similarly, we're struck by the water consumption of, um, of uh, fossil fuel options that are on the table and currently dominating the energy mix in South Africa. Um, and in a, in a country where uh, hunger is still concentrated in rural areas, where tackling food security means supporting a lot of uh, small-scale food producers in the country, many farming on marginalized lands, in the context of climate change, we know we need to increase um, their access to irrigation, for example. We're going to need more water uh, for, the, for their farms in order to grow the food uh, for them and their communities. Um, and at the same time, we seem to be in South Africa pursuing uh, an energy mix which is using huge excessive amounts of water uh, to generate energy from, from coal, for example. So there's a couple of ways uh, on the basis of prices, electricity pricing, and on the basis of the water consumption of uh, different energy options. So we're trying to look at how... Um, uh, how, how we can see these, what, what, are other, what have previously been considered principally environmental challenges through the, through the eyes of um, the fight against poverty and hunger, um, and, and how we can therefore mobilize perhaps new constituencies of interest in these issues, because ultimately what we're talking about here in South Africa and many other countries around the world is a huge transformation that we're talking about. That doesn't come about easily. It needs um, strong pressure from civil society, from the general public uh, to stand up and fight for these changes yeah. um, and, and we're starting to look at one way in which that could be mobilised Yes, absolutely. Bringing on the general public, bringing on everybody is absolutely key. And that was one of the things that came out at the, at the discussion around the paper. I and mean, just lastly, if one, as if one needed any more incentive, uh, looking at the trajectory of if, if we carry on with business as usual, 
it's it's through the roof. We're all going to be dead by 2050. So I think we only have to look at the statistics to see what things are going to be like if we carry on as as we are now. It's just not going to work. Tim Gore, thank you very much. It's been really interesting to have a chat and really interesting to read the paper that you co-authored. Thank you very much. Pleasure. Thank you. Tim Gore, he is head of advocacy for the GROW campaign, Oxfam International. And if you'd like to know a little bit more, um, the Oxfam website, incidentally, is www.oxfam.org, oxfam.org. And if you'd like to, uh, if you're on Twitter, you can contact them. Their Twitter handle is at Oxfam in SA, at Oxfam in SA. Well, thinking locally, the co-author of You Can't Eat Electricity is Liz McDade. Well, Liz is one of these people is she's just got to get herself stuck into something. And for many years, I think she was a political activist. And post-1994, I think she thought there's only one other thing that really needs to be tackled, and that's the, the climate change and all those environmental issues. We've got her on the line. Hi, Liz. Um, hi there, Nancy. How are you? Excellent. Thank you very much. Were you able to hear what your co-author had to say then? Yes, I did. Yeah. Just bringing it all back to, you know, back to South Africa, and it's interesting that we're sort of being used as a test case. Uh, you know, we're, we're ideally placed, I suppose, to be doing something about poverty, which we have in, in very large quantities, and, and you know, the effects of climate change. Where did you start with this paper? Where did you start? Well, I think part of the, the start is, is looking at the context. Um, and I, I do want to emphasize that I think we're, we're in times of great uncertainty mm. in terms of not really knowing how climate change, how, how bad it's going to be, you know, what the world will look like in 20, 30 years from now. And so in that sense, I think we sit in a context where we have a very coal-intensive um, power sector, uh, which is not just about power, but is also about jobs, um, you know, sort of, GDP-related, and at the same time, we have one of the most, if not the most, unequal societies um, in the world, and that, you know, that's not a good place to be sitting. Um, so if anybody is going to try something different, I think uh, South Africa should, should do that. Um, but for me, I came at it from the idea that in a sort of modern age where everybody should be having access to clean energy and having been someone who had advocated um, for electricity for everybody, it's finding that the, the, the very good aims that government had put in place, um, you know, about access to energy, are not actually working out on the ground. Conflicts in policies and legislation, delays in the way that things are rolled out, means that those people that really need energy security are not getting it. Yes, indeed. I, I, there are two things. Well, there are many things here, but I suppose we do have to get, we've got to get the policies right, and people, you know, service delivery is imperative. But it's also a, a case of awareness raising. People have got to have their eyes open to what's going on before they can do anything about it. Yes, absolutely. And I, but I think people... For me, what, what I find, and I find this amongst whether you're, you're, you're talking to someone in the sort of aisles of the shopping center or um, around the dinner party or sort of wandering at the bus stop, if people don't really understand what their energy bills are, what their electricity bills are, and can't really make the link between what is happening in the climate arena and 
our electricity prices and where that might go in the future. And I think part of building that awareness means that people then start to suddenly find this is something that really affects me and I need to take some action. You brought it home to us very, very, in a very sort of simple but powerful way. You told the story of Bussy, who is in fact a sort of hypothetical Bussy. Mm. But you told her story, which sort of explained a lot. Can you just share that once again? Yes. Um, So the idea was, you know, we often get fed these statistics. There's this many people don't have access and that many percentage of this happening. But what does it mean on the ground for someone in their own house? So based on sort of people I'd met and interviews, we created Busi as a single mother, head of a household. Um, She has electricity. She uses about 200 units of electricity a month, of which she should get 50 free basic units. So typically, as with many households, um, although the free basic electricity was brought out quite a few years ago, it took a while for it get to her house because there were difficulties with the local government. Um, But the electricity prices uh, then doubled between 2009 and 2012. Um, But obviously, Busi, who who earns a living from sort of making crafts at home um, as part of a way to get additional income, um, her income is not really going up doubling. And so she has less disposable income, and you have to buy food. So if you have to buy food and your electricity is much more expensive, um, you are ending up only being able to afford less electricity. And, of course, as we know, when the electricity price goes up, it's not just the electricity bill that goes up, but all the goods and services as well. And um, so over those years, uh, Boosie ends up with about a third less electricity. She's still getting 50 free units, but unfortunately she's going to have to buy the other 150 units, and that's becoming more and more expensive, so she gets less and less. But what is also happening is that water, water as a basic human right, um, is not allowed to be, you're not allowed to be deprived of it um, in law. And so what councils do is in order to force you pay your water, they cut off your electricity. And so Boosie ends up in a situation where she's got not enough income, and so she defaults, as it were, on her water and rates. She just can't afford it. Um, And the council then cuts off her electricity. For the time that she doesn't have electricity, uh, she loses the free basic units. They don't get carried over. But she has to, of course, feed her family. She needs um, electricity, or needs energy, rather. So she's forced to rely on paraffin. Uh, so she now has very little water, she has no electricity, she's relying on paraffin, and her children are likely to then get sick. Um, in our Lucy uh, sort of case study, uh, asthma, um, could have been colds, whatever. So what has happened is that Lucy is now worse off than when she started, despite having supposedly have access to things like free basic electricity. So the point we're trying to make is that having these wonderful um, policies and laws in place, if they're not implemented correctly, you're actually driving people deeper into poverty 
and our concern, and this is why uh, we really believe that the carbon tax could be an opportunity to do things differently, is that by adding a further tax onto electricity, um, all we're doing is making Lucy's life and many other people like her more more difficult um, because there's no real incentive for ESCOM to reduce its, uh, its carbon because there's no choice. It just passes the cost on to the consumers, and consumers don't have a choice as to where they buy their electricity. Yeah, yeah, there's, there's uh, so many issues in that little story, and one of the questions that came up at the, uh, at the discussion, in fact, was uh, we use so little energy, um, and, mm. you know, and if, if we're going to be taxed, how do we know that the taxes are not going to be misused? And so the, the thread went on, so very difficult. I'm sorry to, to bring you through to the end, Liz, because there's so much in the paper, mm. but looking at the conclusion... There, there are three areas uh, that, that have been identified as possible ways forward of making this connection. Do you have them on the top of your head? Well, I can sort of describe them. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think, you know, the, the, one, the one aspect was around, I think Tim really covered that, was yeah. about what do you do with a carbon tax? How do you design it so that if you have a tax and the revenues come in, how do you ensure that they get to... Uh, alleviate the, the poverty directly um, so that uh, we don't have this idea that the tax comes in but people's, poor people just stay poor. So that, that's the one. The other aspect, I think, was um, around um, the, the... Renewable energy. Yeah, the opportunities mm. of renewable energy, which is not just to clean up the energy sector, but there are numerous studies which show that this would create a lot more jobs. Mm. Um, it also can be done in a decentralized way, and, and we don't have time to talk about that on this program, but, but there's just so many more exciting opportunities um, with providing uh, energy to everyone through renewable energy. And then the third one, which I think is probably the most important, yeah. and that is the need for all of those affected to have a say in the decisions uh, and a meaningful discussion around well, not just a discussion, but actually start to grapple with the issues. And I think it, this could go around full circle to what you said in the beginning, is we need to become aware, we need to understand what is happening, and we need to create the space to actually find the solutions that work for all South Africans. Yeah, so that all South Africans have a voice and a say. Just lastly, Liz, um, is the paper itself available on the website? Um, I, now, that one I have to admit, I assume it must be available on the Oxfam website. Um, we'll but check I don't it know out. If it's up yet. Yep. Yeah. Nope, we're getting a thumbs up from producer Kim. Yep. Oh, great. Lovely. Yeah. Liz, thank you very much. Do keep up the good work and very best of luck with your masters there in climate change and development. It's, uh, we look forward to the results of that. Thank you. <laughs> thank you so Take much. Care. Good night. Liz McDade, she's an independent researcher and as you heard there, doing her masters in climate change and development at the University of Cape Town. Apparently, yes. You can't eat electricity. The paper is on the Oxfam's uh, site, www.oxfam.org, oxfam.org. Well, there were lots of voices there at Constitution Hill when they had the discussion paper. Uh, and amongst them was Indavile McQuena, who we're going to be talking, about, talking to in just a minute.
But there was also a lady by the name of Emily Charney who had a very interesting question. Emily is with the LAMOSA, which is the Land Access Movement of uh, South Africa. She's also a small-scale farmer herself, and she's with an organization which is Women Together in Development. Hi there, Emily. Hi. Nice to have you with us, and nice to hear you once again. Emily, you had a really good question that you asked the other night at the Oxfam Conversation. Do you want to just repeat it? Hey, <laughs> with last time, I think I will paraphrase it. <laughs> okay. It was a big question. Can I come in? Yes, yes, go for it. Okay. My question was, do the community want to know more? Do people want to know more about the tax, the carbon tax? What we need as people is, here we can, we can see we're talking about renewable energy. And what we see when you travel all over the shores, especially in the urban now, we see solar geysers, you know. Mm. Uh, I can call water heaters, solar water heaters on the roofs. Those panels. My question was, who is who that initiative? Is it the government's initiative? Which department? Because at this juncture, you receive a paper saying you can fill in this paper, bring your particulars, you can have a giza. Uh, that solar panel will be put on your roof of your house. The next time you get somebody, even your neighbor, has got some papers and saying, fill this one, maybe you will get five rent when you fill one individual or one house or two houses, you'll get ten rent for, for one individual. Then the third person comes. You know, we don't know who is, who is the leader of this initiative. We say as, uh, 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 our, our grassroots people, because I'm a community person also, and I come from the rural, from Ntwani, you know, Muta region. We say we don't want those solar geysers there. We can do it. We have the knowledge. We have the skill. We can do it. We, we are reaching our hands. Mm. We are reaching our minds. It's not about maybe getting somebody or intellectuals to do it for us. We need also to contribute. And we say we don't need those things. We need solar energy as a whole. We don't need those solar geysers. We can do our own boiling of water if we need hot water. But what we need is the energy. We, we, in South Africa, we have good sunshine, you know, and we can have solar energy where people can also be taught or trained or given that skill or the technical skill to do it for themselves. Yeah. And the issue also here is about uh, our electricity also. It's not efficient. You know, in the rural, it's worse. When there are those strong storms, strong winds blowing, then we have power failures. We, we can stay for some days without electricity. And yeah. the system also, it's not the same that we are using. Some people use cards, you know, those like uh, uh, bank cards or ATM cards. Yeah. Some use the PIN numbers. So, but this is done by the same company as Comuchi, the parastator. 
So my argument here is, can our government come to the fore, come clear, and say, consult the people, and say, people, this is what I have for you. Can you come up and share together and say, how best can we move forward with this initiative, where people are consulted and where people take part in this initiative? Emily, thank you. You paraphrased it very well. And thank you very much. Well, I think the, po- the point that you really got to me that you were making, you want to be part of this. You, you know about some of the things that are happening, but you want to be consulted. You want to be, for the people to be part of it, taught, trained, whatever. But let's all work on this together. Emily, thank you very much. I'm going to give thank up the you. Lamosa website if anybody would like to know a little bit more about where you're coming from. So thank you. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you. Cheers. Emily, Emily Charlie there, and certainly she had a, a very strong voice there at the, uh, at the discussion. If you would like to know a little bit more about her organisation or the organisation of which she's a member, Land Access Movement of South Africa, it's LAMOSA. It's www.lamosa.org.za, lamosa.org.za. Well, somebody with whom Emily works very closely is Ndavile Mokwena. Ndavile Mokwena is, uh, she's a number of things. She's certainly working for justice and peace, but she's with uh, a member of Gender Climate Change, also Women in Energy Climate Change Forum. And we have her on the line. She was one of the panellists. Hi, Ndavile. Nice to have you with us once again. Hi, Nancy. How are you? Good. Very well. Thank you. Um, Thank you. you. Your presentation was really interesting, Liz, because, uh, sorry, Ndavile, because you, you spelt it out. You said, okay, here are our issues, here are the effects, and here are my recommendations. Can you give us, summarize your issues, the effects, and some of the recommendations that you had? Um, yes, and then um, looking at the impact of climate change and how it affects our communities, you know, the very poor the unemployed, and um, with a high number of, um, high levels of HIV and AIDS in our communities. We're looking at people um, not having access to food, access to electricity, and access to water. And um, we're looking at people with uh, inadequate uh, income and people who are faced with a high rise of prices and high rise of electricity. And um, at the end of the day, people cannot afford either food or electricity. You know, they, they have to make a choice of what, what is the priority. Should they buy electricity or should they buy food? And, um, I mean, with food, you cannot do without food. So they'll end up without electricity and using the dirty and unsafe methods of um, generating energy. And um, looking at some of the recommendations that I came about was um, going for renewable energy, which we feel that is going to help communities by building um, skills, skills development, and also creating a lot of jobs. And when we talk about renewable energies, um, just to, to, to emphasize the point that Emily was, uh, was saying that people need to own, you know, these uh, 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 energy produce mm. because uh, <clears throat> they are able to invest in those community-owned energy produce. Let them be able to feed into the grid. 
to create the energy themselves and be able to feed it into the grid, you know. That will help them with skills and also with some uh, uh, meaningful income. So there's um, other ways where, um, you know, there's this program, the um, expanded public works program that yeah. the government has come up with, where they can start um, using a low, low, low energy um, programs to, to, to harvest uh, rainwater and to use low carbon public transport and to protect the wetlands in our communities. We also can look at waste management is another uh, way of reducing carbon where people can do recycling, reuse, reducing, and also rethinking of the way they are doing things, you know. And um, lastly, I think we can look at the uh, food gardens, the small-scale farming, which if we have low carbon, we, that means we have um, less air pollution, the water is not affected, the soil is not affected, people are able to grow crops and eat healthy and organic food. And they don't have to go and buy processed food, but they can grow food themselves. And um, I also highlighted the primary health care, which also can help, where community health workers and home-based carers are used who are staying in that area to help the sick in the very area. They don't have to walk distances to the clinic yeah. or to the hospitals, but the, 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 the workers, the health workers are going to their homes to help them there. That is going to help to reduce carbon and also improve the quality of life. Yes, they're very simple things, aren't they? They just require a bit of a mind shift. And just on the, on the issue of mind shifting, one of the things that came up was, uh, I think it was Stephen Friedman who was there, who, you know, who also had the opportunity to speak. One of the issues that came up is, if we were to listen to what Emily's saying, that the community is very keen to come on board. They want to know more. They want to help. They want to be part of it. But there's a feeling that that might not be the case for everybody. Is there, what's your feeling on that? I mean, your constituency very much is, is people, on, especially women, on the ground there, do you feel that everybody in the community has an interest in climate change? Do they see that it's part of what could be making them poorer? Uh, I, I think the main thing here, Nancy, is awareness. Mm. Because people, when they are not aware what is happening, they don't have the know-how, then uh, they won't be interested, you know. But once you start creating that awareness, it makes sense to people. Once they are aware what is happening around them, then they start developing an interest. And we have seen that in the communities where we run workshops, trying to show them to, to, to raise the awareness of what is happening around them. And um, the things that they are experiencing, where do they come from and what is it that they can do, then people are beginning to, to have a light and to have an interest at what is happening. And people are prepared to learn and do things yeah. themselves. Yeah, it is. It's a slightly sort of conflicted area, though. Isn't it? I mean, why would you want to practice low carbon, uh, low carbon strategies when actually what you really want to aspire to is a bigger car, a better house, a washing machine, and, and all those things? So there's a sort of um, there's a conflict of interest, isn't there? Um, well, yes, there is. But um, you know, when we look at uh, who is uh, emitting, you know, more carbon. 
It's the industries and the business. But we're not saying the industries and the business must shut down, but mm. they must use different means. You know, the different means of, of, of not polluting our, uh, 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 our air, you know, our earth, our planet. Do you, as, as part of uh, Gender Climate Change and Women in Energy Climate Change Forum, uh, you know, at risk of sort of stereotyping here, do you find that it's, it's the women who are showing more of an interest here? I mean, is, it, is that how it's working? Why, for instance, is there gender climate change? Um, it, it, it's not necessarily that women, it's only women who are showing more interest, but it's because women are the most affected. Yeah. You know, by this climate change. Women are the ones who are suffering the most because they have to look after households. They have to look after children. They have to see that uh, they, 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 they make food, they, they, they warm their houses, they, they take care of uh, the livelihoods of the whole family. And in most cases, we have found that a lot of households are women-headed. And most women are unemployed. So all these effects of climate change, they affect women more than men. Hence, we have, you know, women in, in energy and climate change and gender and climate change. Yeah. Just lastly, Ndabili, on the subject of, on the, you know, on the issue of education and awareness, does gender ch- uh, climate change have a website and is there information on it? Uh, yes, yes. And what is the website? Um, shall we shall we look it up quickly? Yes, yes. Yes, it's late in the day to be knowing websites off the top of your head. Yeah. We're going to find it out and we'll have a look. And really, thank you very much. Very best of luck and uh, keep up the strong work. Thank you. Thank okay. you. Ndavile McQuenna there, we're going to look up the website, but I suspect it's something like www.gendercc.co.za. But just whilst I'm giving websites, let me tell you once again, if you want to see the You Can't Eat Electricity paper, in fact, you will also find it on the Oxfam Facebook page, which is Oxfam in South Africa, Oxfam in South Africa. If you want to check their website, nonetheless, it's www.oxfam.org. Their Twitter handle is at Oxfam in South Africa, in SA. And uh, LAMOSA, which is the Land Access Movement of South Africa, once again is www.lamosa.org.za. Stay with us. This Sunday afternoon at 2.30. Sonny Rollins is like one of the most inspired, passionate musicians of all time. Sonny was playing, holding the horn one hand, conducting, you know, like... Join me, Nigel Famas, for more conversations in and around the Cape Town International Jazz Festival 2013. Jack and Paul sat on my left hand side like a huge bear towering over me. <laughs> I remember writing a song about a little boy I watched playing with trash. He was in his own little world. He's satisfied to dream his old life away. Coming from school, I would scrape the uh, fence with my ruler and it played so many sounds that fascinate me, you know. Enjoy musicians' stories and childhood memories in Conversations in Music Part 2, this Sunday at 2.30. This is SAFM. And this is the Enviro Show here on SAFM. And 
Finally, it's been so interesting to hear what everybody had to say about linking poverty, uh, poverty reduction and climate change issues around that, linking them together. Well, finally, there are a large number of people in South Africa who are food insecure. In fact, according to the Oxfam paper, approximately 10 million, which is kind of a, a scary statistic. But there are also many, uh, many of us, some of us who are really lucky, for whom accessing food is, is just as easy as popping into your local pick and pay. Well, if, uh, if you number amongst those, you'll be very pleased to know that uh, the supermarket giant, their green credentials are, are really very good. And in the studio to tell us all about them, we have Andre Nell, who's the General Manager of Sustainable Development. Hi, Andre. Nice to have you with us. Hi, Nancy. Great to be here. Interesting to hear what we've all heard. Um, food security, I mean, you know, those of us who are lucky enough to, to walk into a supermarket, it's, it's not an issue. It's whether or not you've got enough money, but it, basically it's there. Food security, is it something that comes up for you? Yeah, pay? indeed. And for pick and pay, food security is one of our main strategic drives. Mm. You know, I mean, we are a food retailer, so for us to ensure that we've got product available in future, but also that you can supply that product at reasonable prices to people, you know, so that's the business side. And then on the community side is because we've got disparity in our country, is the work that you need to do with both your commercial farmers, your suppliers, as well as the small upcoming farmers and small businesses to ensure that through the work in terms of sustainability, we also get to a more equal society. I don't know if you're at the, uh, the coal fence, or maybe I should say at the sort of the, um, the cow fence, really. I don't know <laughs> to what sort of interaction you have with the farmers, but does it filter through that the farmers are struggling with climate change issues, that the people who are producing what, you, what you're selling? Yes, indeed. There's a, there's a growing awareness with farmers. I mean, they, they're very close to the land. They're the first people to see changes in water, to see the changes in soil. Um, on the commercial farmer's side, and then also for the small farmers, you know, they battle with things, you know, the awareness and the knowledge, what do you do about these things? So the kind of things that we do to assist them is through, for example, the Pick and Pay, um, the Acumen Pick and Pay Foundation, and that does amazing work with, with small farmers in terms of education, in terms of helping them with things like testing the water and testing the soil, explaining to small farmers how do you actually get this product into this big machine called, called retail. Um, so a lot of focus from our side, of course, then is on developing these small farmers and it's interesting models it's starting to develop um, one for example is called patch per store so if you living in a community um, a lot of time the community owns the land the work that we're starting to do is for the community to develop gardens to grow food which they can then sell back to the local store so the patch around the mm. store becomes the supplier to your local store of course, in the urban you know, areas, it's more difficult, but yeah. there we see amazing things in terms of people starting to develop urban gardens, mm. um, which eventually will also be able to start supplying into your local store. Yeah, that's, that's quite interesting. So on one hand, you're working with the, the producers, but on the other hand, you're working with your, your customers. And I think you're doing your bit to try and educate them as well, or try and sort of persuade them to go to be a bit exactly. green. Exactly. I mean, there's a growing awareness of all customers around these issues that we're all connected, that we all need to work together on this. And we're doing some really interesting things. I mean, a lot of times when we talk about climate change, it is very serious and the impacts are going to be very serious. But it could almost become overwhelming. So a lot of our awareness is just making it clear to people that small changes in your life does have a big effect. Mm. And we're having a really fun social media campaign, for example. You know, everyone's on Facebook and Twitter all the time. It's called Million Acts of Green. Which is um, exactly why we got you into it. So that's what we <laughs> want to talk yeah. about. It. Tell us about it. So how it works is basically you go to the Pick and Pay Facebook page on the website or on your phone. Um, and if you, you do a green or sustainable act, for example, 
um, you change to energy efficient lighting or you wash your clothing in cold water or you hang them outside to dry um, you, there's a button you click it to say this is the green act that I've done so it gives you recognition to say you've done it it shares it with your friends which encourages them to do it and then on the website you can see a counter so each time someone does one of these green acts the counter goes one closer to one million oh, so oh. it's a really fun thing it's engaging you can challenge your friends it's something people can work together on um, and it's an easy way to learn also because you can see maybe oh I assume that Nancy did that I can go do that mm, so it's sort of like a, a personal brag exactly. you know I've done it you can do it too <laughs> exactly. um, how close are you to the million mark we st- still have a fair way to go we launched one month ago okay um, and I think it takes a while for people to get used to it to, for the general awareness to grow but I really I encourage people you know Go do it. Get the kids to do it. It's a really fun thing to learn and to engage them in on sustainability. Just on, on, the, on the issue of millions, um, you were telling me earlier that you did a survey, I think, in, in green terms on your loyalty card holders. How many, how many people have got your loyalty yeah, shopper cards? Our smart shopper loyalty card has been exceptionally well received by our customers. We've got, at the moment, just on under... The price, it's a good deal, isn't it's it? It's a great, great deal. I mean, there's 6.5 million customers that are now part of the smart shopper loyalty card network um, and it's a great way for us to also other than you know the specials that you go in store all the commercial things it's also a way, great way to interact with customers and for them to interact with us so we, at the end of last year we engaged with customers to ask what are your views on sustainability what are the things that you expect we can pay to be looking at and it's really interesting you know a lot of times People might think the green things or the sustainability things, it's for the rich people or it's only the people that can afford it. Or, you know, it's only those people that are actually aware of it. But coming back from the customer engagement from really poor people, lower LSM people, to really high income people, the awareness is there. And things like ethical procurement, recycling, reducing packaging, um, providing people with recycling facilities are across the board, mm. from really poor people to really, really rich people. They all want it. Um, and that's comforting for us because it's the same type of things that we are working on. And it's also a challenge because it shows you that across the country, um, those are the needs of people. And as a retailer, you need to you know, supply to the needs yeah, of your customers. Yeah. I guess challenge is the word, really, isn't it? Because if you walk into your supermarket, anybody's super- supermarket, there are shelves and shelves filled with packaging. The product is there, but it's filled with packaging. It's plastic, it's foil, it's non-recyclable. There's all sorts of things. I mean, you know, what do you do about that? Because you've got to, you've got to sell stuff. I mean, that's how you make yeah. money. So what do you to do? Packaging is important. We, we, we need to transport the product safely, and we need to ensure that it is safe for customers when they buy it in the store or they take it home. But packaging is a huge area for improvement. I mean, we have done substantial work over the last year and continuing this year in reducing packaging in the last year we did light pooling of packaging we started introducing recycled PET into products um, which is good for the environment, it's also in terms of cost for products it brings it down it also starts creating the space for innovative new products um, and do, do, you, do you chivy your suppliers, I mean if, the, if they're producing something you think, oh come on guys you could do better, do you? Indeed and but I think the, what we're focusing on is, you know, also to get our own house in order. So a lot of this work is happening in the pick and pay branded products. Um, we last year we reduced with just over 50 tons of packaging, um, and then also at the store level where we receive, you know, these big boxes of, of product that go onto the shelf. 
um, for example, all those boxes um, and the plastic, all that packaging that gets delivered to us, firstly, all of that gets recycled at store level. But then also working with suppliers, we have got, for example, a partnership with Unilever um, to reuse packaging in our supply chain with them with 30% um, by 2015. So it's Unilever branded products, but the packaging is being reduced and the benefit is to the customer. It's also a good space for pick and pay because it shows partnerships are actually the key for, you know, having a more sustainable mm-hmm. future. Because this partnership, even though it's unique in terms of packaging with Unilever, the benefit will be for someone shopping in any other retailer. Yeah, so that's your Millennium Development Goal. It's <laughs> one of them. Yes, I'm sure you're many. I'm, I'm just thinking about the, going back to the million, um, the million acts of green, which we we really like that idea. Uh, are you guys walking the talk as well? I mean, do all your staff, are they all sort of green trained? Does everybody do the right thing? Yes, we, we've, training is very important, you know, because if you're in a store, the, if you're working in a store, that's what the customer, you know, deals with. That's the person that smiles at you or not smiles at you. So we're doing a lot of work, and it's a key part of our, actually, of our, um, we've got six areas in terms of sustainable development we focus on. And empowering our people is one of the key ones in terms of skills development and skills in terms of training. Um, for example, when everyone, you know, when you start with a company, you have to go through different sets of training and sustainability is part of that. Um, and then we've also got specific training within your department. For example, if I work in the fish shop, um, we've got a goal of, of stocking or selling only sustainably sourced seafood by the end of 2015. So it's important if a customer comes to me at the seafood counter and asks, where is my sassy card that I know what it is, or what is the green fish of the day. Um, so continued focus definitely on training. And it's formal training, um, but there's also fun ways of training. So, for example, we have got printed um, a newsletter magazine for staff, and we've got a monthly video communication for staff, um, and then also, of course, engaging with them on things, well, during channels such as social media. Yeah, so, woof. You've got a lot of work to do between now and 2015, but I think, I think another thing that I think is really quite nice, I think at your head office, you've got a vegetable garden growing. We've got a vegetable garden, and actually we have got a worm, well, several worm farms, worm units, um, at our canteens. So all the waste from the canteen gets recycled. Um, we've also, for example, if you come for coffee, the coffee, um, our canteens are switched to fair trade, so we fair trade at work. So it's, it sounds like a lot, but the important thing is to integrate it within the business. So our sustainability team is really small if you compare it to the 40,000 people working for Pick and Pay. Mm-hmm. But that specifically is our focus, is not to have it as something separate to the business, but to integrate it within the business. Um, and that leads to people, you know, taking it to heart to be, it becoming part of their day-to-day operations. And then on the business side, you start seeing the financial benefits of being more sustainable. So, for example, the work that we've done in energy reduction, um, we had an initial goal of reducing energy consumption in 20, by 2012 for 20%, which we've done. Our new goal for 2015 is another 20%. So if you're translating that back to money, it's 320 million rand that we've saved through the energy efficiency projects. And we're starting to see the same things um, in our approach to waste, how do we handle waste? So we recycle all the waste at our stores, which means less waste goes to landfill. Um, we've also got a target for 2015 to actually send zero waste to landfill, so there's a fair bit of work for us. But it's good for businesses, and that's why a lot of the projects we do first, um, 
and sometimes there are costs involved, but I think the role of business is also to take the lead yeah. um, and face the criticisms that you sometimes get for doing that. But to sh- start showing customers um, that sustainability is very important to us, but also to show businesses that there is efficiencies and there's money to be made be- by becoming a more sustainable business. We have so run out of time, and you're going to run out of time between now and 2015 because you've got so much work to do. Andre and it's been really interesting hearing, and I hope during your lunch hour you rush out into the vegetable garden and do a little bit of digging there for relaxing. I'm going to give out your website if anybody would like to know more of some of those projects that you've got lined up. It's it's, uh, pickandpay.co.za forward slash sustainability, and we will put that up on our Facebook page, Enviro Show on SAFM. Well, that's it. Thanks very much, team. Thanks, Andre Nell. Uh, Kim Winter and Ron Wabofani, and I'm Nancy Richardson.